big pimpin', baby. That's right. Big pimpin', spinning cheese. Cheer, 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 cheer. You know why. Thug them, hug them, love them, leave them. But I don't trust or need them. Take them out the hood. Keep them looking good. With diamond custard and freeze them. First time they fuss, I'm breezing. Talk about what's the reasons. I'm a pimpin' every sense in the word, my mind. Better trust and believe them. In the cup where I keep them, till I need to work, till I need to beat it up, then it's BB, then I'm picking them up, then I play with it, cooking the What's up, homies? You have tuned in to the Life in Paradise podcast with me, your host, Brandon Harper. Today is Sunday, November 15th, 2020. I'm just a regular dude with a regular job and a somewhat normal life who has lots of opinions and ideas. So I come here about once a week to put them out there. I don't have a pre-recorded intro, so it's probably a little bit different every week. I used to live in San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. I still have a business there. But when I started this podcast, that's where I was. So that's why it's called Life in Paradise. I'm kind of too lazy to change it. I'm not too good at technology, and I'm not afraid to admit it. The only video game console I've ever owned is the 8-bit Nintendo, and it's two of them that I've owned. One when they first came out in the early 90s, and the other one about five or six years ago. No, that's not true. Three. I've owned three of them. One of them in 2006-ish, and the other one I just bought about a year and a half ago. But you didn't come here to listen to me talk about the 8-bit Nintendo. You came here, well, I don't know why you came here, because nobody paid you and nobody paid me. So sit back, relax, and hand the kite string over to me for about the next 30 to 45 minutes. Hey, call me the juice and you know I'm a stunt. Riding in the car with some bump in the trunk. Never laugh and you know it's breaking down the good. Get up here tight, girl, say I'm the man. Ice on the wrist with the ice in the chain. Ride through the hood, yeah, I'm gripping the grain. In the same while I'm changing the lane. I feel tight because I'm choking the bitch. messed up because I'm messing with a D-boy. Riding them big toys. Oh, man. I'm exhausted. I've spent the last three days doing wedding things. No, not my wedding. I had a family wedding. And it took place over the course of the last three days. I'm going to get into weddings a little bit later. You know, sometimes I come with tons of stuff to talk about, and sometimes I wake up Sunday morning and I think, oh shoot, I've got to make a list of things to talk about. And you know what? That's like a little bit of pressure. Most people don't ever wake up thinking, I have to make a list of things to talk about. Not conversations, but actual monologues where you just sit there and you talk and you stare at the wall. So today is one of those days. I woke up this morning and I thought, man, I got nothing. Luckily, I had about a three-hour drive, gathered some thoughts, plugged them in the old iPhone, and here I sit. I woke up at about 7.30 this morning in Bastrop. I drove three hours. I rushed home. I unloaded all my stuff. I unpacked my bag. I got the laundry going. I played with the dogs for a little bit. I went to the car wash. I washed the car. I went to the grocery store, bought groceries, came home, put the groceries away, and here I am, podcasting. Well, you'll know nothing about a productive Sunday until you talk to me. And as soon as I'm done recording this, I will go take a nap. <laughs> so that will uh, bend the productivity curve. Okay, you didn't come here to hear me talk about productivity curves. I actually made that phrase up, but I do kind of like it. 
You know, people who have known me a long time have known known me to have a bunch of like, I don't know if you call them idioms or phrases or just little sayings that some of them I've made up, some of them I've acquired along the way. But one thing that I learned from a place where I used to work is called the Theory of the Apes. At least I think that's the official name. I don't know for sure. But anyway, it goes like this. You take a platform and you stick it in a room of apes and you put a bunch of bananas on top of it. And there's a ladder or a ramp that leads up to this platform. And undoubtedly, one gorilla decides to go up there and get the free bananas. When he does, a random water hose comes in and sprays all of the other apes inside the whole room or cage. And so they're all getting doused with water. Very unpleasant for them. So over time, the apes learn that all it takes for them to get sprayed is for their homie to try to go up the ladder and get the free bananas. They collectively decide, hey, it's not worth it. So they start learning to stop them. When they see an ape go up there, they stop them because they know that they're going to get sprayed. And they learn that if they stop them, then they won't get sprayed. So over time, the people conducting the experiment take out an ape and they replace them with a fresh ape that has never seen the whole cycle of the spraying and the bananas and all that stuff. Well, fast forward X amount of time, all the apes have been changed out, but they still try to stop each other from going up there. Even though of all the apes in the room, none of them have ever witnessed the water hose being sprayed. So now you've got a room of apes who behave a certain way to avoid consequences of which they've never seen. They don't know why. They just know that everyone tries to stop the guy that goes up and tries to get the free bananas. So they join in. They say, hey, you know, assuming apes can't talk to each other, which I'm pretty sure they can't, they don't know why they just stop them. So this particular theory or or cycle or behavior or whatever you want to call it, it just illustrates, and you, you can apply it to everyday human life, But it just shows how we tend to do something just because it's the way it's been done and it's the way that everyone else does it, and we're not exactly sure why. Now, you're thinking, what does that have to do with life in paradise? Nothing. But let me explain to you what it do have to do with. In order to make sure I'm not lying or missing details, I'm going to read to you a little article uh, that I found on history.com, and it explains how the voting day is determined. Americans first began the custom of weekday voting in 1845 when Congress passed a federal law designating the first Tuesday following the first Monday in November as Election Day. But why a Tuesday in November? The answer stems from the agrarian makeup of the 19th century America. In the 1800s, most citizens worked as farmers and lived far from their polling place. Since people often traveled at least a day to vote, Lawmakers needed to allow a two-day window for Election Day. Weekends were impractical since most people spent Sundays in church, and Wednesday was a market day for farmers. With this in mind, Tuesday was elected as the first and most convenient day of the week to hold elections. Farm culture also explains why Election Day always falls in November. Spring and early summer elections were thought to interfere with the planting season, and late summer and early fall elections overlapped with the harvest. That left the late fall month of November after the harvest was complete, but before the arrival of the harsh winter as the best choice. Now, let's dissect this a little bit. I mean, did you catch that? That most people often travel more than a day to vote? Mm. 
Times are getting better, y'all. If you don't believe me, just think of that one statistic. People often travel more than a day to vote. Of everyone you know, who would travel more than a day to vote? I mean, here we are whining about voting not being easy enough. You know, Texas accepts one of seven different forms of identification. They, they accept any one of them. You can have seven different forms of ID to vote. You can have the ballot sent to your house and you can fill it out and you can mail it back in. You can show up early. You can go out of your district as long as you're in the early two-week voting window. And back then, homies be riding in these buggies for more than a day. Okay, that aside, let's go back and compare that to the theory of the apes. I bet none of you knew why Election Day was the second Tuesday blah 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 in November. But we just know that's Election Day, so we just keep on making it Election Day when we could change it to any time of year that we wanted. We could put it on a Sunday. We could move it to a holiday when everyone's off work. That way people would have no excuse to not vote. I don't think anyone in the entire country, well, obviously there are outliers, but who would be opposed if somebody said, hey, let's move voting day to Sunday. Lots of businesses are closed. Lots of businesses are slow. Let's move voting day to Sunday. And if we still don't get the turnout that we want, let's move it to a midweek holiday. What if we voted on the 4th of July when everyone's off work? Well, I don't want to spend my 4th of July voting. Why not? How much more of a patriot could you be than voting on the 4th of July? We don't have to make exceptions. We don't have to create closures for businesses because they're already going to be closed. We don't have to worry about people missing work to go vote. None of that. Instead, people just argue. People argue, we should make a federal holiday. You should be able to take work off. There's so many more alternatives. All we have to do is go back and and say, why are things the way they are? How hard is it to change them? You could easily change it to a Sunday. I don't think anyone in Congress would vote against it. I mean, if they did, then you could probably claim voter suppression because there is no good reason. And, and, and believe me, I'm not one to say that, like, there's people sitting up in an ivory tower, like, scheming on how to keep the people from voting. Like, I don't think that happens. I really don't. It's pretty easy to vote considering people used to travel more than a day. It's pretty simple to vote here, but I'm for making it easier. I have no problem with that. I don't think that the reason we have low voter turnout is because people can't get to vote. The reason we have low voter turnout is because people aren't motivated to do the research. They don't care. They think all politicians are corrupt, and so they don't waste their time. So what can you do for those people? Nothing. You're always going to have those people. You know, I, I was talking to a guy the, last week and he said, well, you should have a, a mandatory fine. You know, if somebody doesn't vote, they get fined, you know, 30 bucks. I'm thinking, how are you going to collect it? Where is it going to come from? You're going to take it from their taxes? They have to prove that, that they voted. How much is it going to cost to put a system in place to manage whether or not someone voted and then implement a fine if they did not vote? There's no, uh, there's no cost to that. Yeah, right. You know, people always want to implement change. They want things to change. They want to restructure. And and people that that think this way, that can't identify why we do things a certain way, yet they say we need to change, take none of the consideration into account of how expensive change is, especially when you're talking about the federal government. Just to implement one little tiny piece of policy costs so much money. Things you have to get reprinted. Things you have to get reposted. 
Things you have to get re-recorded. People you have to put in charge of things to make sure things happen. There's such a cost to all that. Anyway, now you know a little bit about why we vote a certain day and how silly it is. Like, literally none of the reasons that we voted on that day when it started in 1845 are still relevant. But we still do it. And there are still people out there that, that would say, we're not moving it. We are not changing the day we vote. Why not? Just That's just the day we vote. <laughs> oh, and I do not understand those people, and I never will. Speaking of things ending, I was at a wedding this weekend, and I paid very, very close attention to, to people and their behavior, specifically in regards to the mask. Because I think it was mandated that the wedding be downsized to 50 or fewer people, and that everyone wear the mask when they were indoors. But what's strikingly odd to me is that there are certain people who don't wear the mask at all. They couldn't care less. They're not worried about it. They don't want the mask. They hate the mask, whatever. Then you got the opposite end of the spectrum, like I always talk about. And I feel like the people at the opposite end of the spectrum um, who, who really think the masks work and they have confidence in the masks and everyone should wear the mask, I think that they kind of make a point by wearing the mask in, in places that are not recommended by the CDC just to make a point. Almost as like, I mean... It's hard to say this because you don't know how individuals think, but it's almost like a righteous, look at me. I wear a mask everywhere. I wear a mask when I'm not even supposed to. That's how good of a little mask wearer I am. And I don't know if that's true. I kind of get the feeling that it is though, because common sense tells you if you're outside in an open air environment, there's really no need for it. And I think the CDC and the WHO and all the other alphabet soup agencies kind of say the same thing. I also do notice how when everyone shows up, it's everyone's on great great mass behavior. They're all tight. They're all around their face. Everything's covered like it's supposed to be. As the night goes on, the masks come down below the chin. They hang on one ear. They get put in their pocket. And then as the night's kind of coming to an end, people are gathering things up. They put their mask back on. If they haven't completely resigned the mask to their pocket or purse, then the mask goes back on. And it's just, it's just an observation to me. It's just human behavior. It's extremely fascinating. When people choose to apply the rules and, and choose not to apply the rules. And it, you know, it's not, I'm not saying anyone's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's fascinating to me. And I wish that I could talk to those people without them being offended or think that I'm trying to pick a fight. Because I can tell you exactly my reasonings, how I feel about the mask without being offended or offending anyone, but I think that most people can't. It is such a touchy subject, and I don't know how it got that way, but it is fascinating. Like, this is going to be something that's written about 150 years from now, and I encourage everyone to pay attention to all these little nuances and look at how much things have changed in such a short amount of time because six years from now, there's going to be somebody running around with a mask on, and they're going to say... If you don't wear masks, COVID's going to come back. And then maybe even six years after that, you know, it's like I always say, there's a bell curve. There's always outliers. One day the CDC is going to come out and say, okay, guys, we can stop wearing masks. When do I think that will be? If I had to guess, if someone had a gun to my head and they said, when is the CDC going to come out and say we can stop wearing masks? I would guess probably a year and a half, maybe two years. And that's being optimistic. Do I think the people will have had enough by then? and probably stop on their own. 
Yeah, for the most part. Until, until if things get bad enough, then it will change. And that's why I think that we need to leave it up to humans. If things get bad enough in your community, then you'll change. But there's a group of people out there that think humans aren't smart enough to make that decision on their own. That they're too stupid to know when their hospitals are full. That they're too dumb to know how many people are dying, even though it's plastered all over our lives every second of every day. And right now, most people comply. They feel that the reward is not worth the risk of not wearing the mask. There will come a point in time where the risk will not outweigh not wearing the mask, and they will choose not to wear the mask. And everyone's timeline is different. And that's the beauty of individuality. That's the beauty of this country. We're not communists. You cannot force us to wear the mask. May we have to suffer? Or might we have to suffer, rather? Yep, we might have to suffer. We, we might be too stupid to make the decision. But we've got to do it on our own. You know, I mean, it's just like the little kid. The, the parents told him, no, do not stick that paperclip in the light socket. They warned him. And then he goes and does it. And he has to learn the hard way. Guess what? That little kid was me. I had to learn the hard way. And to this day, I tend to trust, and I don't tend to, I rely on my own judgment and my own decision-making far more than I rely on some doctor. And I know that sounds stupid, but here's the deal. The, the COVID decision is not purely medical. It's, it's a combination of three things. And I used to think it was two. I used to think that we should make the decision on how to handle covid by letting doctors and economists argue. Since then, I've thought that we need to add a statistician in there because someone who understands statistics and statistical means and measures does not understand economics the way an economist does, nor do they understand medicine like a doctor does. But it's got to be a combination of all three. That's my opinion. And you know what? There's a chance that the masks may never end. We may be like Asia. You know, people may just feel so shameful to take off their mask that they're not willing to do it. That's all human decision. That is all the choice of the individual. And I'm all for that. If that's what the mask chooses to do, that is entirely their decision. On the flip side of that coin, I feel like people should have the right to not wear it as well. And another thing that may keep it from ending is the fact that none of this stuff is measurable. We can't really say how effective is the mask. Because we can't really measure how well people follow the mask rules. And so what, what we're going to have is people evaluating data saying, see, masks don't work, which that's me. I'm raising my hand right now. That's me. I don't think they work that well because there's no, I haven't seen any, uh, any data. I haven't seen any correlation. And you're not going to be able to produce any because you can't have a controlled and a variable study. So until then, I'm just going to look on the data that I have. And that's historical data in relation to COVID and the mask. Not all these other stupid articles by hospital masks today about how masks stop bacteria. Like all that stuff doesn't matter. All I'm doing is looking at the numbers of, of, that we have today. And so I can say, as I've said before, there's no correlation between uh, mask wearing laws or regulations and covid there's no correlation. You can have some places that require the masks and they have tons of COVID. Some places that don't require masks and have no COVID. And I think that the, uh, the natural response to that is, well, those people don't follow the rules. So, you know, we don't really have, we don't, we can't say that it doesn't work. Okay. So then what's the next step? We either 
enforce the rules? What are we going to give tickets for people to not wear masks? Like that just doesn't seem American. And it'd be different if it was a 50% death rate, but it's not. It's nowhere near it. Okay, I don't know. I Look, I know you're tired of hearing about masks. I know you are. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just thought it was interesting at the wedding and <laughs> the reception, the mask behavior. And it, it pretty much aligns beautifully with personality type and political viewpoints. You know, people keep saying, well, this masking's been politicized. I don't think it's been politicized. I think the type of people who believe in the mask tend to vote one way, and the type of people who don't care about the mask tend to vote another way. I'm not sure if people actually politicize the mask. I think that it just aligns with the type of people that are separated by parties. Okay, enough about the mask. We'll move on. No more mask talk for at least another 30 seconds. You know what I love? And I don't know if any other states see this. I'm sure they do. But Texas sees this a lot. And man, I love it. So for those of you who are in Texas or not from Texas, we have oil here. Tons of oil. And about, I don't know, 10 years ago, uh, we developed a new technology that allowed us to drill through a certain area of rock, which is kind of in South Texas, called the Eagleford Shale. And every time the oil field develops a new technology that gives us access to a new oil field or a new reservoir, people who own the land above that oil, they get super wealthy. And most of the time, these guys are just good old boys, farmers, never thought they'd have a ton of money, just willing to work hard. I mean, guys that work sun up to sundown, seven days a week. They fix things when they break. You know, they have these big insurance policies. If it if their crops go under, then they get their money back. And it's, it's just a big gamble. Their life is a big gamble that happens every 365 days. You know, they, they pray for rain when it's time for rain. They pray for no rain when it's time for no rain. They're in church on Sunday morning, and then they're back on the tractor or combine after that. So every once in a while, when this new technology just happens to come about, and they suck the oil out from underneath these guys' land, they get paid. Tons of money. There's all different types of negotiating and different ways to get money, but no matter what, you end up with a lot of money because oil's worth a lot of money. And so <laughs> I've been around some of these guys, and I was around some this weekend, and they're the most humble people. Like, it's funny. Like, these rappers, they make a couple rap songs, and they get paid, and they go out and they buy Rolls Royces, and they go out and they buy Bentleys, and they buy a bunch of jewelry and a bunch of guns, and then it's all gone. And they're trying to make albums when they're all old, trying to get some of their money back. But these guys, they'll spend some. You know, and that's that's what I like to see. I know that they're also saving and investing, but these guys keep working. They keep running their farms. They keep taking the risk. Now they're in a position where they don't have to borrow any money, though. So their profit margins go up a little bit because they have no carry cost. So it makes farming a little bit easier for them. I heard a story about one of these guys that, um, you know, he's got a bunch of farmland and the, and the hogs in Texas are really bad. So... You know, these hogs tear up land and they cost farmers a ton of money and they create extra work and they multiply exponentially. Most farmers just want them eradicated. So they passed a law a few years ago in Texas that allowed you to shoot pigs from a helicopter. 
So this guy, who a longtime farm family, probably multi-generational. If I had to guess, I would say four or five generations of farmers. And he ended up in this oil field money. <laughs> he went out and bought him a helicopter just so he could shoot pigs. And I'm like, man, that's so great. You know, these guys aren't trying to be showy. And, and I spent a lot of time with this guy, and I didn't even know it. I had no idea. These guys are humble. They still drink Lone Star Light. They don't drink champagne. They don't get the taste. And I just think to myself, what's different? What is different between the guys who, when they come into money like that, it's in their family forever? Their kids will always have money. Their grandkids will always have money. What's different between those guys and the athletes that are broke three years after they're you know, they retire, they retire in five years and they're broke two or three years later. And you see them on a commercial selling cars for a car dealership, you know, using their name as an endorsement. You know, it's just, it's just something about culture, the way that we're raised, what we teach our kids. It's not luck. It's not genetics. It is 100% what you were taught. And who's to say what's right or wrong? You know, there's lots of people out there that would say, well, it's just as it's their right to go out there and piss their money off and spend it all. Yep, absolutely. I suspect, though, if you could go to those people and you could ask them if they could do it all over again, they probably would change the way that they did things. Who's to say? It's just an observation. You know, I, I, I kind of, um, I respect more the guys that make it last forever. Obviously, you can tell by my commentary. But I also think that the other guys have the right to piss it all away. And that's the libertarian side of me. Give people choices. Let them do what they want. Don't prevent them from making stupid personal decisions. Throw up the cards and let them fall how they may. Which leads me to my next point. What have you experienced in your life? What have you accomplished? What have you done? You know, I think that's important for us to look around and, and say, like, what have, I, what have I done to be proud of? Like, what? And, and I'm not saying to do it, but what could I brag about? You know, if, if they were going to write a book about someone's life, what would be the grand finale, the biggest thing that they did? And I think that people should, should live their life trying to accomplish things and setting goals and, and, and progressing and changing and doing things that need to be done. And, you know, it's, it's experiences that make us experts. It's not books. And I think that, that people need to create more experiences in their lives in order to have more accomplishments. Well, how do you create experiences? You, you push yourself. You step outside of your comfort zone. You set really lofty goals and intermittent smaller goals that will lead you there. And the more people do this, the better off our government will run. You see, the people who make policy oftentimes have no clue on how they're going to affect industry. Because, well, there's always a hidden side of everything, right? It's nothing but a big game of whack-a-mole. You put one policy in place and something else pops up. It's called the law of unintended consequences. So that aside, how do we have people in the Senate and in Congress that have never been in the real world? They, they don't have the experiences of people that have been in the real world. And when I say real world, I mean not professional politicians. You see, because when these guys are politicians for 40 or 50 years, at the end of that, the only thing they're experts on is politics. And what is politics? It's raising money. It's making friends. 
It's establishing connections to get policy done. That's really what politics is. And so I'm of the opinion that all the experiences and the knowledge and the leadership should all be gathered away from politics. And then once you've established all that, then you can go into politics. But, but you can't have these experiences or you can't, have the, you can't have the accomplishments because you have no experiences. So how are you going to make laws that pertain to small businesses when you've never run a small business? How are you going to make laws to protect the environment when you've never done environmental work? You've never done field studies. You've never taken a low-paying job to do something that you love in order to make a change. You haven't done that. You haven't, you haven't sacrificed. And, and people will say, oh, yeah, politicians make sacrifices. That's bullcrap. They do not. There's big money in politics. It is an industry, and they get paid. If they didn't, those guys wouldn't be there. How, how can someone provide input on foreign trade policy when they've never done a foreign transaction? They've never negotiated a deal. They've never built a factory overseas, or they've never built a factory in the U.S. and had to compete with an overseas factory. They don't understand what it's like trying to hire minimum wage workers. They don't know what it's like that you can't make payroll. And, then, and they still want to implement policy that makes things more difficult. And I'm not being particular. I'm saying this is general. Left, right, it does not matter. This rule applies to everyone. And I really do think that Trump has kind of changed this a little bit. Love him or hate him doesn't matter. I think he's, uh, he's changed the political arena to provide a pathway for people to enter who have actually experienced things. And I really hope this is a trend and we are trending away from the professional 47-year-long politician. Because those guys, and I've said it before, they're not leaders. They have never been leaders. The only thing they lead is some stupid committee that they've been appointed to be in charge of. And all of this bit stems from, I was packing my things up at the, uh, at the hotel, and the TV was on some random channel. I like to go to hotels because I turn the TV on and I just let it play all the commercials. I don't have that at home. I don't have cable. I don't ever sit and watch TV. But in hotels, like I've always got the TV on in the background. I like to flip around. I like to see what TV is all about. But anyway, the Chris Rock was on there. And I think it was Saturday Night Live. And he was doing a bit. And it was like, how are you going to have a bunch of rich white people making decisions for poor black people? And I said, yeah, you know what? Okay, let's just go with that. How can you have people making policy for other people that they cannot identify with? And there's some truth to that. Actually, there's lots of truth to that. So what's the solution? So who should make policy for poor black people? I don't necessarily think it should be poor black people, but I do think it should be people who have experienced being poor, and if they feel like their racism is a reason that they've been poor, then maybe they should be black too. I do not think we should elect people based on the color of their skin. I do think we should elect people based on their experiences. Speaking of experiences, <laughs> I've got one last thing to talk about. And it has to do, well, it has to do with the same thing I always talk about, which is COVID. But it also ties into how great the USA is. Here's my prediction. My prediction is that the USA will be the first one to produce a COVID vaccine that's widely accessible to the rest of the world. Golly, Brandon, why are you talking about COVID? This isn't really about COVID. This is more about the USA and why I think that they'll do it. 
or that we rather will, will produce the vaccine. And there's a singular word. The answer is capitalism. Our healthcare system is motivated by the opportunity for profits. So someone out there sees, hey, they really need a vaccine. The first person who does it is going to get super rich. Okay, we're motivated. Let's do it. Whereas you have other countries who, who aren't set up for private industry to run the healthcare system. And there's, there's lots of intricate other details that go into this. But in this simple example, you take a company with socialized healthcare. There's no competition. There's no one racing to find a cure. What they do is the government goes up and they round up the 10 or the 15 or the 20 best scientists. And they say, okay, guys, we need to produce a vaccine. And they go, yes, we are right now on vacation. And when we are coming back, we will, we will work on the vaccine. But uh, right now, no, we are, we are taking vacations. <laughs> and then you have the U.S. The phone rings. Hey, man, we need a vaccine. Dude, I'm sitting on a beach in the Caribbean. I will pack my bags. I will get home and we will do this and we will get paid. And I know that seems kind of like shady and shysty and greedy, but that's not everyone. Now, everyone's not like that. But the people who can produce vaccines are. And what do we get from that? We get a vaccine. You know, it's just like people who, people who like to get recognition for giving things away. And maybe that's their motivation. Maybe they're motivated by the feeling that they get when they do good things. And people say, well, the only reason you did that is to get recognition. It doesn't matter. They still did it. They still raised a million dollars and gave it to St. Jude. Regardless of what their motivation is, now St. Jude has a million dollars that they didn't have before. And so the same thing's going to hold true. Pfizer's going to be out there. They're going to say, hey, guys, we're going to add billions of dollars to our profit line. All we got to do is come up with a vaccine. Yeah, well, the only reason they did it is so they could make a billion dollars in their bottom line. Who cares? We have a vaccine. Shut up. Go get in line and get your shot. And then we can take off the masks. And then we can go to weddings, sporting events, music events, breweries, all the good stuff. Because some arrogant, shady, greedy individual is motivated by profits. How bad is that? You don't have to be motivated by profits. But don't be mad when someone else is. Because you know what? They produce things that benefit your life. You think I'm lying? Jeff Bezos, Michael Dell, Steve Jobs, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Ford, Nikolai Tesla, Elon Musk, and it goes on and on and on. And if you really cared that much, you would cancel your Amazon Prime and your Netflix accounts. And you can title that segment, How Capitalism Solved COVID. Okay, you know, every time I sit down and I start recording these, I think I got to talk less about COVID and more about other things. But you know what? It just comes out of my brain. I can't control it. This is my chance for me to talk about what I want to talk about. If you don't like it, you don't have to listen. But please don't quit listening. Please keep listening. Okay, that's going to do it. It's now 438. I'm going to go outside, take the dogs, play fetch, do some laundry, maybe take a nap, and then cook some dinner. I appreciate you listening to this entire podcast. I would love to hear back from someone, anyone, Bueller, some feedback. But until then, go out there, be brave, speak your mind, be friendly, 
hold the door open for people. Say thank you when they hold the door open for you. Wipe the pee off the toilet seat if you accidentally pee on it a little bit. Keep your dog training to a high standard. And as always, keep it tranky low. I'm